and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo Westwick PHN Hub. While everyone's settling in, good morning. We'll get underway. Welcome to Project Echo. This is the West Vic Page and Hub COVID-19 Echo Network Series 9, Session 4. It's Thursday, the 16th of June, 2022. And welcome back. This session's titled Connecting the Dots to COVID Care for Rural Communities. And I'd like to be in, begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. I'm zooming in from the beautiful lands of the Wathaurong people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I'd like to um, extend that respect to any Aboriginal people connecting today. We recognise the diversity, resilience and ongoing place that First Nations people hold in our communities, pay respects, and we support the self-determination for First Nations people and we'll work together on closing the gap. All right. Thanks, Gemma. I'm going to struggle today because my print is busted. So I've um, got both the script and the screen. And every time we share, I'll lose. Anyway, there we go. Got my place again. Thank you. All right. So so by several measures of depth, winter is clearly here. There's over a metre of snow on the mountains and no doubt many of us can be seen skipping about imagining being knee-deep in snow. And the depth radar of cases of both flu and COVID has health services knee-deep in a less desirable matter. So for a third year in a row, in the winter months, we come together to discuss the role of primary care in um, communicable diseases pre prevention and, and case management. From the 1st of July, the public health system makes a shift to a decentralised system. So it's a dawning of a new era for regional public health units, one that's probably been operating in neighbouring states differently for a few decades, and it's, it's new for us now. So what will this mean for us in primary care? Um, this is what we'll be talking a bit about this morning um, as those changes from the 1st of July occur. We'll again revisit antivirals, consider how prescription for them is going in primary care and consider the role of preemptive planning for our regular patients with chronic diseases in um, residential and disability care and with comorbidities. Uh, so we've got a few quizzes in store. There's one up now. We're keen to hear, take the temperature of what's happening with your antiviral prescribing. Um, we've got an update for Grampians Public Health Unit regarding access for rural patients to supported COVID care pathways. And as always, we'll be inviting you as our crew of experts in context to ask our content experts um, questions to resolve your practice dilemmas and any barriers to care. So let's get underway. Um, as you know, I'm Bianca, GP. I'll be facilitating today with um, Gemma. Fee, I noticed Zach Hollow is here. Welcome. And um, welcome to everyone joining us from the Westwick regions. Thanks, as always, for introducing yourself in chat. Um, let's get underway. I think we've got an acknowledgement to start with, um, Gemma. Oh, um, so Queen's birthday honours list. Um, so our, our, our own Deb Friedman, congratulations to Deb for outstanding public service to uh, health in Victoria um, for her COVID-19 response. So we're really proud and congratulate Deb on that um, award and recommend and recognition. Um, and also Lucas de Tocca. Uh, we Many of you will remember, recall Lucas and he's uh, um his, oh, Kate Graham, um, what's his actual formal title? He's the, one of the head he's secretaries. The, uh, I think he's an assistant secretary, uh, something like that. But he was absolutely integral in terms of the national um, COVID vaccine rollout. But from a Westwick perspective, he was amazing. He really helped us um, and he was so responsive. He basically got us the COVID vaccination pathway, um, which then went on to be a national health pathway. Um, and we were developing that before the vaccination program was released. So he actually was really integral in setting that up for us. He was so responsive and we're really incredibly thankful to him. 
Thank you. That's great to hear. And because so much of what we've experienced seems to be kind of, you know, on the hop implementation. So to hear that he got in and helped you get prepared with that um, well in advance, that's that's great. Yeah. And he was really available, came and spoke with us a few times. So, yes, congratulations to them. Um, thanks, Gemma. So, you know what to do. Um, videos on or off. And um, we've got an in-session evaluation at the end. Do um, let us know what you'd like to see happen in our next series, because this is the last for this series. Um, we're going to take a break after this and um, let us know what else you'd like to talk about in the future sessions. Um, and I think let's get to the agenda. Yep, we'll go skip. Oh, today you're going to talk about the restructuring of the public health system, COVID care in the community, antiviral pre-planning and COVID care in rural settings. We'll move quickly to the agenda. So who, what have we got on the um, agenda this morning? So Naomi White's going to take the um, news section of our content updates this morning, bring you a public health and primary health network update. Kate Graham's going to focus on priority population, um, considering um, priority populations that we might just need to think about as we really shift, I guess, into this next stages of what our public health system is going to kind of look like going forward. What is the public health mindset we need in primary care to think about that population health level um, targeted proactive care in primary care. So Kate's going to bring you um, some uh, uh, something to reflect upon there. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Rachel Cowan, Infectious Diseases Physician, Head of Infectious Diseases at Ballarat Health Services. And which public health unit are you at, Rachel? Is it Western or Northern? I think that, that I get mixed up North between East, two. Northeastern Public Health Unit. Northeastern. Well, Nefu. Nefu, it yeah. is actually slightly east. Yep, yeah, great. And um, so Rachel's going to bring us a temperature check on health services, um, some communicable disease, a little quiz, and a talk about, um, chat about Evershield. And Dr. Jenny Helsing, fractional staff specialist, GP um, at uh, Grampians Public Health, is going to present to us uh, um, a, a program of work that she's been working on um, regarding covering um, people in rural areas across um, the Grampians and how to connect them to care um, out in that region. And, uh, and is going to put to us a, a little kind of clinical challenge for us to kind of help her solve. All right, so let's get underway. Over to you, Naomi. Thanks, Bianca. It's very unusual to be first and not have negative one minutes uh, to, to talk. Um, so as uh, Bianca said, I'm here with the news. So please drop into chat um, your thoughts around this as, uh, as well. We want to hear from you. So from the 1st of July, uh, some of you will have heard, or if not, um, this is wonderful news for you. Uh, the Victorian Health Department uh, is reducing uh, the, their capacity in the COVID space. So what this means um, is they care is being shifted from the Department of Health to the LPHU. So we have Barwon uh, Southwest PHU and Grampians um, PHU as well uh, at a reduced funding capacity. So the services that can be offered uh, and have been offered during the time that it's been held by the Department of Health will be reduced uh, and coordination um, will be held by the public health units. Uh, there'll be a reduction in fixed site testing across the state uh, and those that will remain will have funding for three months. Um, there is a contingency to extend it for a further three months depending on the environment and, you know, towards three months' time. Rapid antigen tests will be encouraged as the primary method of testing. Um, so there will be no asymptomatic testing for, um, for the general public outside of special circumstances. Uh, so we're thinking about people who uh, live in aged care. Uh, so there's other people in aged care with COVID. So we would be testing those people. So, um, or those living in disability houses with other people in the house that have COVID. So specific reasons to be testing somebody that is asymptomatic at the time. Um, 
what does this mean across our region? Well, we'll have to wait and see um, what the public health units have uh, prepared uh, beyond um, the end of June for that space. Um, but for a general practitioner, um, what does this look like coming into your clinic? Well, there's potential that people um, haven't had access or don't have access to PCR testing. So they'll be coming to you with support, um, for support uh, from a positive rat test. Um, and potentially an increase on demand on the Commonwealth-funded GPRCs and private pathology services to provide that COVID testing uh, in that space, uh, who will continue through to September at this stage as well. Um, and vaccines, if there's an opening up of, uh, of eligibility uh, in the vaccine space, well, that will be pushed on to primary health care to take the, the bulk of that activity, uh, as we've seen with the opening up of uh, the 12 to 15 year olds with immunocompromise. Thanks, Gemma. Uh, communicable disease prevention, so the vaccine. So um, I'm gonna go real soft on this as a news because I think Kate's gonna go a bit more in depth. Uh, so obviously in the June Blitz, uh, there have been about 2,000 practices and pharmacies have signed up to the program across the state. That's a ballpark, not an exact, uh, across the state for the program, which is fantastic. Um, we expect that there'll be more detail uh, delivered probably next week uh, on a portal that will be available online for practices to log into on the 1st of July uh, to lodge your activity uh, and that will be to get yourselves paid for the work that you've done. Uh, so watch this space um, and WVPHN will We'll put that uh, out to you when we are clear on when that's arriving for you. Uh, they have also, um, the state government have also announced that the emergency immunisers uh, available for the COVID program, some of which will be available uh, to use uh, on the flu program. There is a learning portal and the link is in the slides here and will be provided to you. Um, if you're going to use emergency immunisers, they are not um, covered specifically under that national exemption that has been provided for COVID and you should talk to your uh, insurance provider to make sure they're covered before you engage them uh, as search workforce uh, and if you do engage them at search workforce they are required to do this new influenza learning module prior to that uh, which includes they need to have also done all of the COVID modules. Um, COVID-19 uh, I did briefly mention the 12 to 15 year olds uh, third dose booster for those that are severely immunocompromised, those with a disability with significant or complex health needs, uh, and those who have complex and or multiple health conditions uh, that would increase their risk of COVID-19. Thanks, Gemma. Communicable diseases management. So in the, in the background, we've been uh, doing a bit more work on the um, pharmacy dispensing website uh, page on our website for Western Victoria PHN. We now have a map uh, and it has a bit more detail for people. So if you can see on the right of screen, uh, there's a screenshot of what the map looks like uh, with little pings of where we have contact, contact with pharmacy and permission to share their details, which includes their location, the name of the pharmacy, the phone number, their address, their um, opening hours uh, and really important we we listen to your feedback uh, down there it has stop notes so um, 
Where known, it'll say um, whether they usually have Ligivrio and Paxlovid in stock. Now, I do note that we have no control over whether they have already dispensed that today or not, but usually every day there is some stock in that pharmacy. Uh, so they're colour-coded as well. So orange means that they are um, just getting the, the drug in. Blue means they've got one or the other, and green means they've got both uh, on site. So that should help you with um, when you've got those patients that seem to be day five and needing uh, their medications today. Uh, a reminder that the Alfred Pharmacist Assistance Line is open there. Uh, most of the feedback I've heard that it's been not too much trouble to get through, which is fantastic. Uh, there's a link here for, there's been an update for remdesivir in children, uh, use for COVID treatment. Um, this link takes you to a page of decision-making for children with COVID. Uh, and down the bottom, there is a, another link within that that tells you about the drug treatments available. So remdesivir has been approved in uh, certain circumstances for children above 28 days. Uh, as well as Paxlovid has been approved for children in certain circumstances above 12. We do recommend um, that if you are unsure in this space to contact your, um, the Royal Children's Hospital or uh, Barwon Health uh, ID physicians or an ID physician in the Grampians as well. If you, if you are unsure, um, most of these kids will be picked up uh, by the public health monitoring programs. I think I'll just add in there that um, the use in children isn't under the PBS uh, categories for Paxlovid. So for all of the children and child categories, they'll need to be referred on for prescription. Perfect. Thank you, Kate. Um, and Tamiflu, uh, like Ligivrio, has been placed in aged care facilities uh, with the same view of getting it into people early. So um, please look out for that in your aged care facilities. Uh, and, and they also fall into the, the category of um, potentially we should be testing them for both COVID and flu um, where it's unknown, the uh, source of illness. Uh -huh. Look at this. Here's oh, that was my it. fault. Sorry. I just told Gemma to try and click on the hyperlinks and she has and now we well, can fantastic. see. Well, it's fantastic. This is worked. great. Well, that's they, great because they, they do. They yeah, do. I wanted to see if on that hyperlink when you click on the childhood path, it links you to the RCH helpline. That's the main reason. So, anyway, thanks, Gemma. I, should, that, I just really set you up there, didn't I? <laughs> that's fine because this is the end of my presentation and I'm pretty sure I didn't take up all of my 10 minutes. So, um, does anybody have any questions um, on the news. Otherwise, um, Kate's going to give us a bit more detail on um, what clinically in this space. Thanks, Naomi. That's great and well done. Um, and, yes, we love people that run under time. And how was it to have 10? It must have been amazing. Oh, I almost ran out of things to say. <laughs> Over to you, Kate. Please, yeah, pop any questions in the chat and we'll take them as they come. Good morning, everyone. So I thought that I'd um, just run through today just a bit of a thought profile as to how we can actually think about communicable diseases, focusing on those respiratory diseases and preventative care, um, both in terms of preventing the illness overall, um, but also preventing hospitalisation. Um, so I think this sort of is the little thing that we'll go through a bit with identifying the risk group, vaccination, the pre-workup for antivirals, rapid testing, and access to rapid testing, the antiviral treatment. And then finally, after you've been treated, that follow-up of modifiable risk factors. Obviously, that's kind of in a circle because your follow-up of modifiable risk factors is part of that identifying that risk group and making sure that you're doing things at the start. 
So I'll just go on to the first slide. So when you're identifying the group at risk of severe disease, there's a bit of overlap for, from flu and COVID. This list is actually the flu list. Um, so um, we'll really want to think about who's at risk of severe disease and also who, for whom access to care is made difficult. So your residential aged care, disability, remoteness, um, people with socioeconomic disadvantage. Uh, I think one of the key things that we've known recently is the fact that in disability settings, people in the NDIS have a higher chance of hospitalisation and death from COVID. Um, and people with um, sort of socioeconomic indicators that um, are sort of lower socioeconomic indicators have lower rates of actually being diagnosed with COVID at the moment but they have much higher rates of hospitalisation and death. I think that some of this is about that initial access to care and access to testing, all those kinds of things. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So I think they could, just thinking about that last one, you want to think in your practice how you're going to identify things. You've got ways sort of to think through with practice managers, practice facilitators, if you want to do a bulk screen, all, all those kind of things. But then it's what you can actually do to prevent hospital admission. Your vaccination is obviously a key strategy. So your influencer in COVID, and it's how you can actually prioritise your groups at risk. Um, so I think one of the things that um, some of the policies that come out are about the entire population. Um, and I think that as a practice, um, we've got responsibility for the whole population, but we also have really the only responsibility um, for groups who are um, at risk because of distance, because of mobility, um, the vulnerable groups. And so I think for me that's about vaccine equity and making sure that everyone has the same chance to access a vaccine. Um, and I think really not forgetting Pneumovax because I think for a number of the patients that I've seen personally, like in that post-COVID space, um, when you actually get blood cultures back when they've been hospitalised, things like that, you get the um, sort of, you do find that bacterial infections are incredibly common post in that sort of initial post-COVID phase. So um, then the next step is the strategies to prevent hospital admission. So your antiviral pre-workup, which um, we'll go on to soon, but the rapid access to symptomatic screening and testing. And this is something that um, I really wanted to talk through a little bit because the influenza advice has changed. And there was advice that came out yesterday um, from Deb Freeman as uh, the Deputy Chief Health Officer around influenza. And really it's making sure that everyone who is in those at-risk groups um, that we mentioned on that first slide has a PCR for influenza and COVID. Um, and that's about knowing where to get tested in your area, how to get results, how to get those test slips out to patients if they're being tested somewhere else, um, or knowing you know, where your GP respiratory clinic is because they'll be able to do testing for both things. Um, but still knowing that your rapid antigen test will guide that initial antiviral management if your rapid antigen test is positive, you're going to commence those COVID antivirals. But the new guidance is that if your rapid antigen test is negative and you're in one of these at-risk groups, 
you want to commence Tamiflu or the other um, antivirals for influenza while you're awaiting the results. Then when you get the results back, you can stop if it's not influenza. But because influenza is causing so much morbidity, mortality um, at the moment and is really, really incredibly prevalent within the communities um, as a circulating virus, this is the current advice um, that we're providing. So I think Gemma's kindly popped a link in the chat to that advisory. And so the antiviral prescribing pre-workup that we're going to talk a lot through later as a bit of a discussion um, during Jenny's piece is about that pre-planning and it's about thinking about who you're going to pre-plan for so um, and how you're going to pre-plan. Thinking about who is at risk um, with your eligibilities, so your patients with age, comorbidities, immunosuppression, um, the difficulty accessing care again. Um, so patients with severe immunosuppression, I think one of the things that we were talking about yesterday in the planning for today was, oh, well, most of them should have connections with, you know, their treating teams or things like that to know that their pathway is in. But I think I found recently from a patient who's a post-transplant patient who um, does have active um, sort of other reasons for immunosuppression as well, um, in addition to the transplant. So it's incredibly high risk. They were very disconnected from having a contact point around COVID. And I think the community knowledge of what to do when you get COVID, where to get treated um, or who to contact, how to actually get tested and what to do with that test is not great at the moment. And so there is a chance that people could fall through the gaps a little bit. Um, so I think that that's, that's a really key group that we'll know about as GPs to sort of provide some of that information to. Um, and I think one of the key things that I wanted to flag in that pre-workup and not just thinking about COVID is actually reviewing everyone's renal function because the um, Tamiflu doses that have been provided into residential aged care are 75 milligrams, which is the dose for normal renal function. And I don't know about everyone else's um, aged care patients, but the majority of mine do not have normal renal function in aged care. And so it's a bit of a scramble then to sort of get scripts for the 30 milligram dose and things like that, which can often come at a delay and how you actually dose modify in the meantime. Um, and knowing how you can actually get those that information remotely um, when you get that phone call from the nursing home or from a disability facility. So it's all those things that we kind of did at the start of COVID, um, which is sort of reinforcing those remote access. Um, so I think the education of patients is really key. Um, op opportunistic um, chats and maybe booking people in for a more in-depth conversation. Um, and then if you have had people who have been prescribed antivirals, then getting them back in afterwards to talk about those modifiable risk factors. Um, but I think we'll just go on to the next people probably because Thanks, I think Paige. that was the end of my slides. But I think what I really want to focus on today is that chat and discussion with everyone in terms of figuring out where the barriers are um, and what what the challenges are so that we can work on a system that actually works for everyone. 
Thank you. A um, couple of questions in the chat. Um, Rachel, did you want to kick off? I mean, we, so the questions are Tamiflu cost on PBS. I think Penny said she prescribed it yesterday, but best practice only gave the option of private scripts. You said you check the PBS. You don't think it's on it. I just checked the price. It looked like superpharmacy.com.au said $39.95. So anyone got any um, other intel on that? Does anyone... And, and Kate, um, we know Tamiflu's in racks. So how's that looking? Are, are they well stocked? Yeah, I did. I'm not quite sure in terms of the stock levels, but I think it was pretty similar, like in my residential aged care to what we got initially for COVID, which was, um, I think we might have actually got more Tamiflu just thinking about the fact that like with Tamiflu, you actually like if you get to the point of outbreak, you then want to go on the prevention pathway as well and the prophylactic care. So I think that's one of the other key things to think about with influenza is um, having a look at the residential aged care guidelines, which are going to be up soon um, and updated soon online. And they'll have some just some um, nuances around COVID as well. Hopefully they're not too far away. Aged care guidelines, where do uh, they come from? Yeah, the CDNA aged care guidelines. The ones that are up at the moment, the CDNA aged care guidelines for influenza aren't too bad. Um, I think that the one thing that's probably missing from them is a really sort of strict definition in terms of the isolation period, um, and that'll be a lot clearer in the new guidelines. Um, of like in the new guidelines it'll be down to five days but at present it's sort of that seven seven days to ten days um, depending on immunocompromise and depending on age Mm -hmm. so I think um, the other thing that I wanted to mention that I just temporarily forgot when I was chatting um, was in terms of the testing um, and the testing arrangements at the state government level they're working on having an arrangement with the um, the majority of the testing companies. There'll be some that aren't able to do this um, to actually have messaging going out to patients similar to the COVID test result messaging around influenza test results as well. So hopefully that will be soon. So that's something to sort of keep in mind. But at present, there's not. Um, so I think if you get a result across your desk because you've been copied in from somewhere or something, um, it's important to make sure that the patient is aware of that and is actually accessing treatment. Thanks, Kate. Rachel. Yeah, just further going further with that with the Tamiflu as far as treatment doses is 75 milligrams twice a day or BD. Um, and prophylactic doses, actually, that's 75 milligrams once a day for 10 days. So it's the same same size pack. You just give it once a day, you're giving it prophylactic. Um, and that's for anybody that's sort of a close contact or immunosuppressed or in the residential aged care facility as well. Uh, as well. Um, Before yes. you go on to Mick Canel, Mick's, Mick's question, yeah. um, can I just quickly ask, so for Kate's patients that have poor renal function and she wants to use a half dose, can she give that just once a day and would that be okay or can we break that capsule down and put it in solution? Do you know if there's any way we can get around some of that? Um, I think you could probably just give it once a day and it'd be fine. Get them started with a loading dose and then see yeah. if you can source the half doses or... Yep. Or just onwards. Okay. So I'll, 
I wanted to take Mick's question and actually broaden that out because let's just take this as antivirals. What's the what's why are we using antivirals? So let's recap. We want to prevent severe illness, not only in the acute phase, particularly in the nursing home setting in terms of management, but also for longer term morbidity. And we want to prevent hospitalization. So quick recap: how good is um, Paxlovid at preventing severe illness and hospitalization? Reduces it by about 85%. So the data that we've got, it reduces severe disease. Like obviously it's, people are still going to, you know, still feel sick around it and where, whether one person feels sick or doesn't feel sick is is completely unpredictable. Um, but it does reduce the data uh, about 85 86%, I think, for both the Paxlovid and also Remdesivir. Um, also has that. And so that's the infusion uh, if they're not eligible for Paxlovid that you can access through the um, public health units uh, and the COVID positive pathways. Um, Legevrio or Molnupiravir, the data initially suggested about 50%, but when they've further analysed the data, it's only about 30% effective in terms of reducing severe disease. So it's kind of, third line it's third line but my understanding was that we initially we were saying oh 30 that's not much it is better than nothing but in the real Absolutely. world in the real world um kate was describing that um in fact in say for example our rack population in fact it's been really good at preventing people from you know say in the rack setting actually being hospitalized so that's actually in real world it's anna did you have something that did you know something that can you do a better job of this than me <laughs> Yeah, just anecdotally talking to staff at the racks, you know, they've had eight cases of um, COVID and none have needed to be hospitalised. Um, most of them are managing them within the um, aged care facility. It, I mean, that's my limited experience of what three or four facilities in Ballarat, that they're managing them well within the facility with very little transfer to hospital. I think there's still the occasional death, but that's partly, I think, probably due to underlying conditions. So I, th I think yeah. it has been reasonably effective um, anecdotally. Yeah. I've heard the same anecdotally as well. Yeah. Okay, and it's such an important measure as well that they're managing them in them and, the, you know, for all, for all, for the patient, for the staff. So now let's look at Tamiflu. What, how does Tamiflu do? Tamiflu is an interesting thing. It does actually reduce the severity of disease and the length for which you are unwell. So the thing with Tamiflu, so the difference between the two treatments, or Paxlovid really, um, is it kind of, gets the virus at an earlier stage of the life cycle, whereas Tamiflu, the way Tamiflu works is that it's a neuro, neuraminidase inhibitor. And so what that means is that the virus particle is formed in the cell and then kind of buds off and out of the cell. And it's actually the neuraminidase that cleaves the fully formed virus into the system. So it actually comes in later rather than earlier um uh, sorry yeah it, like in the life cycle of the virus so the thing is is that getting it in earlier is much better than getting it in later because obviously there's less virus that's around that's that's sort of fully formed and, and there which is why you need to get it in within sort of 48 hours um otherwise you know the horse is pretty much bolted and you've got virus everywhere so 
Um, it is you've got to get it in as as quick as possible. As far as sort of exact numbers around severity and prevention of hospitalisation and stuff, I'd have to review the data again. I just know it shortens the, I think, the disease by a couple of a good couple of days. Um, as far as hospitalisation, I'd have to. It's been a long time since I've looked at Damiflu data, and but it does reduce the severity of disease. I was having a look at the um, Tamiflu data last night and there are studies sort of around that nominated treat to prevent a death. Um, actually, no, I'm thinking of the vaccination, sorry. No, that's okay. Um, I'm... No, but vaccinations, um, just in terms of vaccination, it's 158 um, in some, like, as a nominated treat to prevent a death. So that's actually, you know, thinking about what you actually do in primary care, it's not, it's not a lot um, of work across your day to actually prevent deaths in terms of vaccination. Um, and the vaccination in terms of preventing illness is, you know, the nominated to treat is somewhere between 7 to 14, depending on age. I think the key thing there, and we'll continue this conversation, I think, coming into, you know, coming months as we, I think, really have to look at uh, our relationship with racks and disability care and in reach vaccinations um, is, you know, what what role are we going to play in terms of trying to think about um, some of this preventative treatment that Kate's describing and in reach vaccinations? Um, I'll be keen to see if it, here in the chat, is anyone going into racks and um, providing flu and COVID shots and, and what kind of models of care are you running? Really good point, Bianca, because the support for that in reach um, is, is reducing, particularly with the state activities reducing. Uh, and there's currently no in-reach other than primary care for um, influenza uh, vaccinations directly. They're, the state have been doing some concurrently with uh, COVID vaccinations, but for in-reach flu, um, that's all primary, primary care. And that's thinking about not only our residential aged care, but our um, you know, frail, elderly, disabled um, that are at home as well. Uh, you know, where does that fit into our um, into our you know, primary prevention activities as well. So really good timing to, to bring that up. And I think that's something we need to think about going forwards. Thanks, Rosemary. Um, thanks for popping something in the chat. Did you want to, I'm not sure if you you want to bring yourself online to just finish off this part of the conversation or if you'd like me to read that out. Good morning. Rosemary says we're seeing um, what we are seeing occur across our aged care outbreaks in our region is very few positive residents are even symptomatic if fourth dose vaccinated and it's staff who are mostly impacted um, with illness. All right, I think I'm just conscious of time. So, Rachel, let's um, kick off your, your formal prezi. I just thought I'd go through sort of a couple of the numbers and stuff of what we're seeing at the moment. Um, this is data that I got from last night, and there's a really good website that you can obtain anything as per LGA and as per disease that you can do for any of the reportable diseases that we actually see, um, and I can send the link through. But what we can see over the many years is that we had, you know, 2019 was a terrible year for influenza, and then we had next to nothing in the setting of the lockdowns. And now, up until now, we've we've just absolutely taking off with influenza, and that's because people are there and they're, mo you know, they're. Um, they're out, they're talking to each other, they we're actually socialising and living, you know, a normal life pretty much now. Um, the thing is, is that what we've seen also in COVID in the last 30 days is that previously we've sort of seen that, you know, peak and then it comes right down again. What we're actually seeing is this, this sort of wave of, you know, up 
plateau, up plateau, up plateau, and it's a much, much longer tail than what we're actually seeing at the moment. Um, the other thing that's really sort of coming to light as well, just working in the public health unit, is that a lot of people aren't reporting their rats. And so the estimated numbers that we're actually seeing is somewhere we think it was probably, you know, five, maybe even tenfold less than what the actual um, cases are that are actually happening in the community at the moment. Um, just as far as sort of the current state of play and what's happening in the hospitals, the hospitals, and this is statewide, I know, but certainly in Ballarat, um, what I've seen recently is that they are hurting and they're hurting really hard. We've got people that have, you know, been in, in the hospital system since the dawn of time and they're actually finding that this is the worst that we've ever seen it and actually getting into hospital and, and being seen. The acuity of the people that are presenting are higher, so it's not just that sort of group of, you know, triage category four or five that could have probably come to see, um, you know, you guys. Uh, uh, they're not the issue. It, it's it's the higher acuity people that are coming, and twenty and 30, twenty to thirty percent of those people are actually leaving the hospital before actually being seen. And that's a really, really significant thing because if they're really sick and, uh, you know, a higher triage category and they're not getting seen because there is nowhere to see these people, they're being seen in chairs, they're being seen wrapped in the corridors, They are, it is absolutely diabolical. And so people are, are not being assessed probably as, as well as they could be just simply because there's not physically the space to see them. And the numbers are completely overwhelming. Um, I contacted the the head of ED, um, Pauline Chapman, uh, last night about sort of what to do, you know, and what to kind of suggest with you guys. Um, is that for her, she just wants to thank you guys because she knows that you guys are doing it really tough as well. So it's not just, you know, EDs and hospitals, but also just the fact that um, uh, that. It's, it's managing the chronic diseases, I think, and, and sort of making sure that you're sort of catching up with your patients because a lot of people just haven't been presenting to their GP due to the fear around COVID and sort of making sure that, you know, things are pretty as crisp as they can be so they're, they're, you're reducing the need to present to hospital. The other thing is is that then moving them through into the hospital uh, is difficult because there really is a, as it is a lack of beds. And also getting people out of hospital. It seems to be everywhere that there just seems to be this at every single stage, there's actually a block. There's a block to getting um, seen in ED, there's a block to getting into the hospital, and there's a block uh, as well at getting out of the hospital. So everybody's working really hard to try and work on it. But it it when you start getting to the stage where 20% of at any any particular shift, you're actually not. Um, and it's not so you're, you're actually not seeing those patients because they give up waiting. It's, it's a horrible place to be and you couldn't pay me to be an ED physician for love nor money. Um, it, it's incredibly distressing at the moment, I think. So it's absolutely unprecedented and we, we know that everybody's tired, everybody's burnt out and it's complicated again by loss of staff um, due to... Um, you know, having COVID themselves. So it's that kind of, it's it's a difficult time at the moment, I think, just for the hospitals. 
I just thought I'd talk about Evershell as well, which is, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it because that's just embarrassing. What we do know, it's a it's a combination long-acting monoclonal antibody and it binds to the spike protein. And what the thought is is that it's being used as a pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I think this is probably the good bit of coming into the end of COVID is that now we have effective vaccines that we're actually seeing are having a benefit and people are doing really well uh, and we've also got treatments and now we're getting into pre-exposure prophylaxis um, for high risk individuals and so and they actually say that the efficacy actually lasts for about six months i mean obviously it'll be interesting to see what happens in coming into the future with more data because obviously six months is a long time but they think it's a 80 percent reduction in the development of symptomatic covid there, well, there is a very, very, very limited stock uh, for Victoria, um, and I'm on the early treatment working group around that. Into and initially, it was just released for those solid organ and bone marrow transplant patients, uh, but uh, we've actually opened it up, and I think there's going to be more stock that we're actually going to be able to get and access uh, as well. But there was a, a real time imperative around sort of getting people seen, so we've broadened that cover out um for include sort of b cell depleting therapies as well and those that are much more immunosuppressed there's a whole enormous list that i just couldn't even put on there as far as access it obviously needs uh access through the national medicine stockpile that's at the alfred so it will it is something that we are working on both in the barwon region i know speaking to a public health unit down there and also up here in ballarat it's it's all of the um uh, all of the specialties have been contacted in terms of we have access to this and now it's more around trying to work out where to give it. it it's um, two IM injections of three mils each. So I, that's just an enormous ouch as far as I'm concerned, but I, I figured small amount of pain for a great amount of gain, I think. Um, I know Bowen Region, I think, are doing it through their Vixis clinic. We're currently working out where to do it. We know that um, BHS, some of the oncology hematology are just getting it at the day centre, um, day oncology unit, and there's just been an expressive expression of interest that's been put out by the Department of Health in terms of helping to support facilities to provide this treatment uh, in terms of setting up access clinics. So I think this is going to be... Uh, potentially a game changer for those really, really immunosuppressed. As far as it sort of going on further to other, um, other patients uh, and patient groups, um, I couldn't really tell you at the moment. I think the stock is just way too limited, so we're really focusing on those that are, that are particularly immunosuppressed. Um, and just in the interest of time, given that there's so much um, important discussion that's happening at the moment, I'm going to actually skip the quiz that I was going to do uh, and I will hand it back to Bianca. I can't see the chat at the moment, so I'll have Thanks. a look at it. Um, yeah, great. Um, so Janine asks, would um, so she do, do we think more marketing, read the respiratory clinics where people can have PCR and GP consult might assist with presentations to the ED? I mean, I guess, um, Naomi, like in real time, we've got um, no more increased capacity for GPRCs, but what do you think? Do you know if there's... Yeah, so the... They've been doing a massive marketing campaign across Melbourne um, for the GPRCs there. And what we're finding now is that they're also at capacity. So um, they are trying to hold um, 
walk-in appointments, but they're getting so many walk-ins that they're booking them in for the next day, which is impacting on the ability to see people. Uh, and they're also hitting capacity at the moment. Um, and just noting that most GPRCs and that have one, if you're lucky, two doctors um, for that clinic for the day. Uh, so while they do have capacity and we certainly should be sending people there, I'm not sure it's going to be... Um, a big stopgap for the presentations elsewhere. Um, I'd be interested to see if any um, GP clinics are, are holding any appointments for their own patients in this space uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, or what does this look like going forwards? Um, at this point in time, uh, our GPRCs in our region, so Bellarine, Geelong, Ballarat and Horsham are all funded until the end of September. Uh, and I don't know whether they will be funded beyond that. So um, it's interesting to note like what's planning um, in clinics across the district for if and when this um, does uh, end. Um, I, I suspect they'll push it out to Christmas, but um, that's not known at this point. But absolutely, um, I believe the emergency departments, the triage nurses know about the GPRCs and they are pushing people down there where they think it's appropriate. But I agree with Rachel's comment that people seem to be coming in sick that need to be seen to the emergency rather than people that are um, could have gone to their GP. Is It's the sick people that are, um, imagine, sick people in emergency department um, clogging up the system. Thanks, Naomi. Um, Rachel, we've got a question about how do we refer potential patients, Rachel, I think that, and that's probably for Evershield. Is that, is that what yeah, you're Yeah, at, at the moment what's happening is that, well, at least up in the Ballarat region, um, oncology, hematology, rheumatology and neurology have all been contacted and looked at a list of people uh, in terms of the people that they're actively treating at the moment. If there is someone that you think that um, could potentially be treated, I think it would probably be worth contacting COVID-positive pathways potentially. Uh, it actually, actually, I'm going to lie. I'm going to say I'll have to get back to you because that, it, it's that new that we're still working out that. I think if someone is actively seeing a specialist in those specialties and would probably con qualify, it might be worth them contacting their specialist would probably be the best person to do it at the moment we haven't even set up the, the clinic at the moment so I couldn't even tell you if there's anybody in particular that uh, would be eligible so it's kind of that new uh, as far as accessing it but I think getting them to contact their specialist in terms of whether they're eligible or not and bring them and that's probably the best way at this because yeah we're quite sure um rachel i'm just thinking um so there's a there's a bit of chat in the in the chat there's a bit about masks and, and public health messaging around masks um there's also we've got some responses to the prescribing antivirals which is looking really good so um people seem feel confident there was one person who said they had no access to to hear what happened there because Naomi's no doubt really interested in that and Rachel's really interested in what are the questions about prescribing so what are the things that are really holding is still kind of bugbears that we want to have resolved we won't have time to resolve maybe that question because I'm really conscious of Jenny Helsing's time and also wanted to note Starcast from Grampians PHU today Megan Thomas Alan Hugh and Rosemary Eldridge on the line so um you guys are um you know you're our uh, friendly Grampians public health unit and um, we're so grateful for your time so Jenny, over to you. Let's crack on with your piece and um and please do keep the chat coming through. And Rachel, um, if you're happy to keep an eye on the chat, let's see what we can resolve. Jenny, over to you. 
Hi, everyone. Um, yes, we, we have a stand, standing meeting clash with Echo at this time, unfortunately. So we're usually here for the first half, but um, it's good to be here uh, on mass today. So I'm Jenny Helsing. Um, just a few things in the chat. Uh, I completely agree with the um, public health measure, measures, mask wearing, etc. I've just been on a, um, on a flight uh, away from Melbourne and I'll be going back to Melbourne um, uh, and not really looking forward to sitting on a flight for a number of hours uh, without mask mandates um, on a personal note. Uh, but yeah, look, there's the enforceable and, and legally enforceable in the, the um, uh, mandates, but then there's also that uh, sensible advice. So yeah, keep keep wearing masks and keep recommending them. Um, Evie Sheld, uh, I just echo what uh, Rachel said, um, the, the people who are on the that list of eligibility um, by and large would have links to a tertiary centre where they would be able to access that. And that is something that's being established um, regionally quite uh, rapidly now that the eligibility is expanding. Um, so I'll go to the next slide. Um, so I just wanted to go over uh, the uh, two things. So the um, care teams and linking in with them uh, in the Grampians region, and then talk a little bit about COVID pre-planning. So there are 11 uh, health services with care teams within them that provide COVID care on the in-care pathway as part of the Victorian Department of Health COVID positive pathways. Most of them are using a program called COVID Monitor, which is a, a web-based software program um, that helps to automate uh, a lot of the um, uh, monitoring um, and also provides uh, sort of an, an an SMS link, um, as well as phone support for those who are on that in-care pathway. Um, as Rachel said, the uh, hospital's under pressure. We all are. Um, that includes a monitoring um, program. And we're finding um, that GPs uh, can be really on the front foot, as in they're, they're there when the, the rash is positive or they're, they're linked in with the GPs um, before they get on the monitoring pathway. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, there's uh, the two respiratory clinics one in um, Ballarat and Horsham. They've been established for a while now. Unfortunately, with the rollout of some state um, respiratory clinics, there's not going to be an additional state-based respiratory clinic in the Grampians region. However, uh, there are um, all of, of the understanding that all respiratory clinics can take telehealth appointments. So I'll go to the next slide. Um, and I just thought I'd uh, show you with uh, our wonderful epidemiologist who I need to credit for uh, this um, slide, uh, Julia Hoskins. So this is showing um, a, a year, year yesterday. So from the 14th of uh, June last year to the 14th of June this year. And you can see uh, with all the wonderful public health measures and mask wearing and um, rings of steel and, uh, and vaccination, we really didn't see significant COVID in the Grampians region until sort of January. And you can see in January at Wooshka, it absolutely just um, uh, skyrockets there. And, and that's really when those 11, the, the 11 COVID community care teams were already established. Um, and that's when they started uh, really uh, caring for the community through that in-care pathway. And as Rachel sort of pointed out, we've, we've had those uh, peaks and troughs uh, or peaks and plateaus, I should say, but it, it's grumbling on. So those care teams have undergone a, a review uh, of everything they've learned in that sort of, you know, over the last few years. And um, especially in the last six months and looking at that longer term um, perspective for their monitoring programs. And that's been supported by the uh, Grampians Public Health Unit. Um, if we go to the next slide, 
Uh, as part of that review, I just thought I'd show the um, structure and what I really want to concentrate here is the four uh, boxes um, uh, with the little bubbles underneath them. So there are four uh, lead health services for those 11 community uh, care teams. And uh, they are uh, in the East Grampians Health Service, West Wimmera, um, Grampians Health and Central Highlands Rural Health. Um, so they they have been very recently uh, established, and if we go to the next, um, uh, so those the co uh, the coordination and the uh, um, coming under those lead health services has been recently established, and we've got the contact details there. Um, I know that there's no email address for Grampians Health. That's that's purposeful. So we haven't hadn't uh, they prefer to receive the information by uh, fax. If you're wondering why that's not there, um, so these will be available on Health Pathways uh, shortly. And what this means, and I know we've had uh, feedback, and thank you to everyone for that. That it's been challenging to link in with the uh, Grampians um, in care monitoring team. Uh, I can see a few things in the chat. I'll come to them uh, in a moment. Um, on the next page, uh, so, so those are the contact details if you need to get in contact with the in-care team. Um, the Victorian uh, Department of Health has a website, the link for which is down um, in the bottom of the slide there. It's called COVID-19 Medicines and it's aimed at consumers um, and the general public. Uh, it encourages people to see their GP or link to a GP respiratory clinic if they've got um, uh, COVID. And it also has, uh, you can see there, the drop down um, menu. Uh, if you on the website and you're clicking on those, it goes through the risk factors um, and eligibility for uh, COVID uh, early therapies. Uh, on the next page, uh, the other thing that it says there um, on, on that uh, COVID medicines page is it encourages people to check their eligibility and think about that before they fall ill to COVID. So uh, as you can see there, it says if you think you might be eligible for these medications, contact your GP before you contract COVID to discuss uh, the medication that's best for you. Um, and with that shift towards community uh, care, um, uh, and uh, and highlighted on this uh, website. If we go to the next slide, um, Bob, uh, he's turned up for his um, appointment. He's 76 and he's got type 2 diabetes and he's read this website and he's very keen to discuss it with you. So during, um, he's got a care plan appointment with you and your no, uh, nurse to review his, his care plan. Uh, next slide. So I think this really brings up the um, idea that we need a COVID action uh, plan. And this is uh, really in response to uh, in response to that encouragement of the public to be pre-planning um, and also the discussions that we've had in this echo session as well, that um, uh, thinking, uh, thinking ahead about how we're going to manage the respiratory viruses, um, including COVID. So as luck would have it, uh, you've actually prepared this useful tool and you've got a COVID action plan or pre-planning template. Um, and that's really looking at their early therapies uh, eligibility specifically with the view that if, um, if and when someone uh, who's in those high risk groups turns up to uh, the general practice, so they've got that short little squeeze in appointment at the end of the day, um, you've already thought about um, uh, in terms of early therapies, what you would need to action um, because that, that needs to be happening with that in that sort of five um, for some of them seven days. So really being on the front foot uh, of that. 
And I'm just curious to open up to the room um, about what you would include in that COVID action and pre-planning template. Uh, and this is actually, a, the, this is a, a real thing that we're considering um, quite actively in preparing for the general practice community. And I'd really appreciate your wisdom in understanding whether that would be useful, whether you would use it, uh, where you would fit it in, um, and, and what you'd like to include in there. So things that we're thinking about is um, which medication is this someone that you're calling who's really high risk and you want to link in um, for remdesivir, say, um, or is this some someone where you can do a DMMR um, and have uh, as part of that to be reviewing any potential Paxlovid um, interactions and having a bit of a plan around that so that you can uh, be on the front foot of prescribing. The Thanks, Jenny. So, crew, you've got a challenge. We want you to start getting active in the chat. Loving all the conversations about masks. Let's put a pause to that for a second. I want to ask you if you're going to be available. You could be available to do a, a photo of yourself with a mask um, and promote it out through the community. Would you be interested in that? Because our comms team could back up some support for that. But let's go to Jenny's question. Um, a template such as this would this be helpful in primary care if it was, if it was linked to best pra practice and you could um, open it up and it took you through decision making and um, around antivirals and, and preparedness planning would this be useful you know would you make time for this how would you make time for this and what would you want on that template so rapid fire feel free to come off mute Lee Meakin, I'm going to throw to you. I can see you've got your camera on. What's what's going on with your cogs right now? Um, I think a template would be good, um, like your ASPA action plans, um, because they go somewhere in your file, which at the moment I just put in my patient's notes and I've written in the chat. I bold it, I put it in red, the EGFR. I go through, I've gone through all the interactions already so that I know if they can have Paxlovid or definitely can't and that I've discussed it and the patient knows to contact a doctor within five days of illness. But obviously, if they're a complicated patient, you have to trawl through that or I keep on copying and pasting it every few times so that it's up front and centre, whereas if it had a template somewhere that was easily accessible. Um, that would file in correspondence yeah. or something. It'd file in letters, yeah. wouldn't it? And so at the moment, you're putting it in social comments in red. Are you best practice? Um, at the moment, I'm just putting it in the notes, um, but I could put it into that past history, social family history section of ZMED. That would work too. Um, I've just kind of started it. So, I mean, happy to change. Just, no, no, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about kind of what are our practices and well done, Lee, good on you for already, um, so already doing pre-planning. So it's already happening um, and it's something that you're thinking about, but it's, it's lost and buried in those notes. So actually having a template would be helpful because then it would be stored somewhere and, and we would then have to get into the habit of looking for those templates in our colleagues' notes if we're looking after patients. So what would you like on there? What would help? Apart from the, the the obvious, so the Liverpool checker, you know, going through the medications, the um, having some um, uh, you know assessment at the end of it all that says what your recommendation would be. What have we got coming through? And if you feel in the spotlight, I'll pop my email address in the in the chat. Um, always happy for you to reach out to me there. And I've been thinking as well, like one of the things that would be sort of a potential to develop would actually be something like a card for your patients as to like 
what to do if you get COVID. It's like their COVID action plan as well. Like, you know, we'll have our COVID action plan as to what to do for antivirals, but I think that they need one as well in terms of where to get tested if they develop respiratory symptoms, who to call um, and those kind of things or what numbers to get support because it's kind of I feel like that that's often where they get a bit lost as well and I'm seeing people sometimes like a week after they've developed symptoms and they're like, oh, I didn't get worse, so I didn't bother going and getting tested. And it's like, yeah, 83, like you probably had COVID. Everyone else you knew had COVID. Um, you are definitely eligible. But um, it's, yeah, it's worrying uh, the lack of general community knowledge and I think that's part of our role to educate as well. Now, we are at time. We could definitely continue this, and I do apologise, Jenny, um, that it did take us a little bit of time to get to you this morning. Um, I think we need to continue the conversation, so I wanted to kind of put this to you guys to go away and reflect because I think Jenny is interested in developing in anything that, you know, that might support in this space, aren't you, Jenny, in, in terms of developing that tool. So it's really um, this is where co-design happens, people. Um, so do please um, think about this, and we are very serious about um, garnering your thoughts on this. So Jenny's popped her, na- her, her email in the chat please do reach out um we'll continue this conversation so bring those reflections back about what would help and um, what kind of tool we need to build it does sound like there's a space for it keen to hear also whether you think it would fit in with chronic disease management planning whether nurses could do this work whether this could be something they could do as part of chronic disease management reviews um, whether we could go in and do this in racks, what would that look like? What would doing a, a, a you know dedicated visit to a rack and running through a template like this with patients would that be helpful? So, what types of tools can we do in regards to preparedness planning? Um, I think uh, I want to yes let you know about this. This was very I thought this was a very good um, session on long COVID. So we've been really talking about long COVID and um, the, um, I can't remember this the name of the doctor, but the, uh, this is a GP presenting at the GP refresher on long COVID and it really was a thorough top and tail top to tail presentation. So the links in the chat and um, please do um, go back and look at that if you want to hear the 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 late the he, he's the um, director of Emerge, so that's the Chronic Fatigue Australia. He's got um, quite a number of patients with long COVID. So he did get a good presentation. Um, what else do I want to tell you? We were going to take a break. It does feel a bit wrong because things are really cracking off. So do you want us to come back next week? If we're coming back next week, what are we talking about? Otherwise, we were going to kick off Echo, I think, on the 29th of July again. So there's a bit of a break. How does that feel? Are you guys all feeling like, um, you know, in general, well prepared? Or um, did you want to catch up in the middle somehow, even for just a conversation, um, I'd love to hear from you. So grab that evaluation link, um, message us at Project Echo Westwick PHN and let us know, um, you know, what what your support needs are for the next six weeks. And um, do, I think this conversation about masks is really important. So if you're willing to be part of promotions, um, reach out to, um, who, who are we going to reach out to, Rowena? If you don't mind, pop a, a link in the chat if people are prepared to, um, you know, pop their face with a mask on it um, in some sort of promotions campaign. I think maybe it's up to us as medical leaders to promote mask wearing. If um, if at the moment it feels like the temperature politically is um, maybe adverse to promoting masks, maybe we as health leaders should be putting that message out there. Um, so if anyone's interested in a group photo or, or some socials, um, let us know and the comms team are happy to support that. All right. Um, so uh, I think that's it for me. I'm sorry I didn't kind of give you a very clear plan about when we're coming together for the next session, but we'll, we'll get back in touch. Um, and um, thanks all for joining us. We'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. And you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.